Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Now, we have uh, an old hutch or sideboard at home. Is a photo of it. Uh, it's a, a genuine mid-century modern piece that we bought from uh, local salvos in Sydney um, for a bargain price in our first few years of marriage. Um, and as you can see, it's not in very good condition. I could have made, showed you even worse parts. Uh, see, early on, I used it um, for my coffee machine was on it, and this particular coffee machine used to leak water, and it, it damaged it. I didn't really take you know, very good care of it. There were stains, damaged surfaces, some structural issues, minor structural issues. But we've kept it. We've kept moving it from place to place over the years uh, because we like it. And the intention has always been to restore it, to, to sand it back, to you know, uh, stain it, to varnish it like new. That's been the intention. Uh, in fact, when we moved into the church manse, um, you know, a bit more than six months ago, we initially didn't put anything into it. Um, we wanted to keep it empty uh, so that we could take it out the back and restore it once we got the, the shed in order. Uh, and we knew that if we just filled it with books and crockery and stationery and whatever else and just generally used it, then we would inevitably settle for not restoring it. Again, we would just get used to it. It would be good enough. We would ignore the stains and the damage. And we would effectively abandon our plans and aspirations to make it what it could be. Anna's nodding her head <laughs> at the back. As you can see, unfortunately, that's exactly what's happened. I don't know if Anna still lives in hope of me emptying it out and taking it out the back. Anyway, I'm sure you've had similar experiences. Um, you know, maybe something's broken around the house, and, and you could do a quick, easy fix, uh, a not very nice, but a good enough fix, but you don't want to, because the problem is that, that it will be good enough, but it, it won't be what you really want, and so you want to kind of... Uh, you know, not, not tempt yourself to never fix it properly. Uh, and then, you know, because then you'll just live with it. Or maybe you move into a house and you put all your unpacked boxes into the spare room, intending, of course, to unpack them, to sort it out so that you can have an office or a spare room for guests. You just close the door for now, just, you know, to hide the mess. And six years later, the door stays closed and the boxes are there. You just live with your boxes rather than have a spare room or office. Uh, maybe something became a habit that was never really meant to be a habit. I'm just dropping my clothes on the floor for now instead of putting them away. Just today, just this week. Uh, it's just temporary. You know, or is it? The truth is that we can quickly become used to things that are not meant to be this way. Uh, before you know it, the not as it is meant to be becomes the new normal. But whilst rooms of boxes and damaged furniture are annoying, the issue is really serious, isn't it, when it comes to sin in our lives. The problem is that we don't just normalise bad habits like dropping clothes on the floor, we normalise sin in our lives. We get used to it. We just live with it. It becomes normal. We forget that sin is a cancer to our soul. We forget that God has saved us from sin. He's called us to to put it to death. We convince ourselves that 
that the sinful habits, the attitudes, the reactions that plague us, they're just not that big a deal. Well, the book of Judges as a whole, and particularly the introduction to the book in chapters 1 and 2, it presents a very strong warning against complacency and compromise when it comes to sin and sinful influences in our lives. Now, these chapters warn us not to trivialize temptation by showing us the terrible consequences of compromising in the fight against sin. And I think it's a warning that we all need to hear and take heed of time and time again throughout our lives. So as we've heard a number of times today, we're starting this new series in the book of Judges, and over the next two months, we'll work through the whole book, taking each key episode at a time. And as you saw in that video earlier, uh, the book as a whole tells the story of Israel's spiral into spiritual bankruptcy, expressed quite graphically in the final chapters of the book. And and through this bigger story, which is uh, really a a carefully arranged series of stories, it highlights the depths of our problem of sin, our need for God's gracious intervention, and particularly our need for a saviour, or rather a saving king, who will not merely lead God's people in military victory, but rescue them from themselves, rescue them from sin and lead them in holy worship of God. Uh, As you also saw in the video, um, chapters 1 and 2 form a two-part introduction to this bigger story of the book as a whole. Chapter 1 explains how things went wrong in the first place, leading to the downward spiral, And chapter 2 introduces us to this overarching story of the downward spiral. Uh, It summarizes the book to come as a sad cycle of rebellion, oppression, deliverance, and rebellion all all over again. Uh, And so up front, Judges 1 and 2, or it's really up to chapter 3, verse 6, it presents to us a key message of the book, which we should bear in mind for everything that comes. Beware trivializing temptation and making compromises with sin. See where that will take you. So, just uh, as I just said, chapter 1 explains to us how things went wrong in the first place. Uh, on the surface, uh, as we uh, read through it together, you, you will have noticed it reports the military efforts, the successes and the failures of the Israelites trying to drive out the nation still in the land that God had promised them so that they could take full possession of it. But the real message of the chapter is a story of compromise and disobedience which paves the way for idolatry and experiencing God's judgment rather than blessing. So verse 1 sets the scene. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? Now, just so we're all on the same page, it's worth recapping the story very quickly so far. You see, this isn't just some random violent whim of the Israelites to go fight against their neighbours. I don't, don't like those Canaanites, let's go get rid of them. This is what they've been called to do by God for their sake and really for the sake of God's plans for the whole world. The short version is that against the backdrop of humanity's rebellion against God and and the hopeless situation that puts all people in, God calls a guy named Abram, he gets called Abram later on, and God tells him to, to pack up to move to a new place, which is the land of Canaan, and promises to bless him and make a great nation from him. Uh, despite the fact that he and his wife are old and childless, and that he will give the land of Canaan to his descendants as their own land, uh, and that through this nation, God will bring blessing to all the nations of the world. There's um, definitely some ups and downs along the way, but a nation does come from Abraham, 
God rescues them from slavery in Egypt. He gives them his holy law through Moses. He brings them eventually into the promised land through Moses' successor, Joshua. Uh, And so the key point to appreciate is that Israel fighting against the Canaanites and taking possession of the land, it is integral to the fulfillment of God's plans and promises to rescue and establish a people of his own in their own place who will know and worship him, who will represent him to the nations. This is about God's kingdom being established in this time and place. And whilst we struggle to understand it, the fact is that God had commanded the Israelites to completely destroy the existing inhabitants of the land. See, they weren't just to squeeze in beside them and make friends and kind of do their own thing. They were to wipe out the original inhabitants of the land and take possession of it. Now, it sounds horrific to us, you know, to be honest, doesn't it? It, it sounds like the worst kind of colonialism and ethnic cleansing. What's going on? And I don't want to pretend that there aren't difficulties to wrestle with, but it's important to appreciate that God had two important reasons for commanding this. Firstly, it was a judgment on the Canaanite peoples for their profoundly ungodly way of life. God had determined to judge them for their violence, for their idolatry, for their immorality, for their false worship. And the Israelites were his divine instrument of justice. He explains this hundreds of years before it happens to Abraham. Uh, In fact, the whole reason that it takes hundreds of years for Abraham's descendants to possess the land is because God is being merciful and patient with the various nations who live there. Uh, As God is promising the land to Abraham's descendants in Genesis 15, he explains, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So it's judgment on them at the right time. Uh, But secondly, and related to this first reason, it was crucial that the Israelites didn't become like the Canaanite people. They were to be a holy people. The land was to be a holy land. They had to eradicate the influence of the Canaanites and be a different holy people rather than allow the Canaanites to turn them away from God and his law. So in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is preparing the Israelites to go into the land and trying to set them up for success. And he explains, this is a really crucial passage. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons and take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me and serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now this passage was crucial for understanding what Israel was supposed to do and why. And we need to, to read the books of Joshua and Judges in light of it. Taking the land was truly a holy war. And God's plans for the world, his good plans for the world, they depended on it. So just before Joshua died, he called all Israel together 
uh, with all the leaders before him, and he charged them to complete this task according to all that God had commanded through Moses. He encouraged them, God will continue to drive out the nations as he promised. Just be courageous and finish the job. Be careful not to associate with the nations. Be loyal to God. Beware the influence of the nations. And so back in Judges chapter 1, verse 1, so far so good. After Joshua dies, they step up to finish the job. And how do they go? Well, as you might have noticed in the reading, they seem to go okay at first with uh, Judah and Simeon successfully taking a number of key cities and regions in the south. Uh, That's described in the first half, verse 3 to 21. They strike down tens of thousands, they raise cities to the ground, they completely destroy the Canaanites living in uh, Zephath. The Lord is with them, and they drive out nations as God promised they would. And along the way, uh, the capture and punishment of Adonai Bezek, it reminds us that this is a war of judgment of God on the people of this land for the way they have lived. Even Adonai Bezek, he recognizes it himself. And the details of Othniel and Akshar going to to live in the hills and and so on, they give a concrete picture of the fulfillment of God's promises. This is, after all, about God's people dwelling in the land and experiencing God's blessing. But towards the end of this first section, there's a few disturbing signs. In verse 19, although God enables them to take the hill country, they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley because those people had iron chariots. Ah, are iron chariots too, too difficult for God? He, he can deal with anything except iron chariots. Or is something else going on there? And then, although in verse 8, the men of Judah captured and destroyed Jerusalem, we find in verse 21 that the Benjamites, well, they didn't actually drive out the inhabitants of the city. So the Jebusites have lived among them in Jerusalem to the date of writing. And these just seeds of failure, hints of things going wrong in the general success of the south, well, then they pave the way for a depressing account of failure in the north. Uh, Again, there's initial success described in verses 22 to 26. God is with the house of Joseph. They attack Bethel and they destroy it. But even here, Israel begins to go astray. They make things easier for themselves by making a treaty with a local resident trading insider knowledge for safety. This guy then goes and builds a town in the land of the Hittites, one of the nations they're supposed to destroy. And it's still there now, apparently, according to the writer. And then the rest of the chapter is just failure after failure. Manasseh failed to take possession of Bethshean and Tanakh and more. Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Geza. Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Akko and, and more. Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh. And then it gets even worse, doesn't it, at the end. The Amorites, they forced the tribe of Dan up into the hill country, wouldn't let them down into the valley. They go on to retreat. And so chapter 1, it it reads as a sad story of initial success turning into widespread military failure. But the real failure isn't their lack of success in these battles, these initial battles. No, it's the compromises they make afterwards when they could have finished the job. You see, I don't know if you noticed it when we were reading through, but there almost seems like a a thread of silver lining in that second half, doesn't there? The author keeps mentioning how in various places, uh, the tribes of Israel were at least able to force the existing peoples into into slavery, into forced labour. You know, it kind of seemed like a consolation prize. But no, 
That's the evidence that this military failure was really a moral and spiritual failure. It was evidence of disobeying the command of God. Instead of driving out the nations when and where they could, they often compromised and just enslaved them instead. Now, it's right for us to pause and take note of the way that we are tempted to compromise in our own battle, the battle we are called to wage against sin in our lives. Now, of course, I want to be very clear, Christians are not meant to pick up swords or guns or whatever and fight the pagans. There is a massive shift, isn't there, that happens uh, with the coming of Christ and the nature of God's kingdom in this world and what it means to be a part of it. It's no longer a physical, geographical, political reality. It's spiritual and invisible, something we participate in by faith through God's Spirit. So we don't need to carve out land in Palestine or anywhere else, for that matter, to be God's holy people. We don't even need to separate ourselves from secular society and, and become closed off holy huddles. But we do need to be God's holy people, don't we? See, God rescues us out of slavery to sin and its consequences uh, in our lives, and he, he calls us to embrace this salvation, to embrace our identity as people who belong to him, who share in his holiness. We're called to be different, even when it hurts. God urges us to put sin to death, blow by blow. He calls us to persist in it. And he warns us of the very real temptation to give up this fight and the dangerous consequences if we do. In Romans chapter 6, Paul explains that if we just continue sinning as if it doesn't matter, well, we are effectively offering ourselves as slaves to sin all over again. And we know where that leads. The writer to the Hebrews warns us against our hearts becoming hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, And he points to the example of the Israelites who failed to enter God's rest. He urges us in light of our salvation in Christ and the examples of, of faith in the Scriptures to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. In the context of this fight, there is a a very real temptation for individual Christians and for churches uh, as a community to trivialize temptation, to downplay the influence of secular culture on our thinking, on our values, to compromise our holiness, basically to just live with sin, to think, We've done enough. God understands that that particular issue, that's just too hard to deal with. We don't really need to confront that person about that issue. That's just too awkward. Not worth it. To, To slowly change our attitudes towards money and sexuality because we've just soaked up too much of the example and the values of the culture that we're a part of. But if we go down this path, we will undermine God's purpose in our lives. We'll compromise our witness to a world that needs us to be different, to offer them something different. And ultimately, we'll, we'll run the risk of shipwrecking our own faith. Now, the struggle is natural and understandable. I'm very familiar with it. But that doesn't make it any less serious. You see, it must have been confusing and distressing for the Israelites when they failed to drive out those nations initially. Uh, You know, they may have questioned God's plans and purposes, their ability to take the land. They would have lost confidence, motivation. It would have been natural and understandable to lose sight of the urgency of driving out these nations. 
And, you know, frankly, it would have been tempting to wonder if wiping out the existing peoples really that necessary. Seems pretty harsh and brutal. Wouldn't it be more humane and, frankly, more useful if they just served as our slaves instead? Wasn't that still possessing the land? Wasn't that good enough? No, it wasn't enough. God had explained what had to happen and why. He had warned of the dire consequences if they didn't take his command to rid the land of the Canaanites seriously. No amount of excuses could hide or justify the fact that Israel was choosing to compromise God's command, to take the easy way out, to just find a way to live with the Canaanites. And God had not failed to notice. So in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we see God confronting Israel over their compromise and disobedience. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, you, but you shall break down their altars. See, through his messenger, God gives them the context. He reminds them of what he has done, the promises that he has made, and the commands, the obligations that he's put on them. And, and then he turns to what they have done. He confronts them bluntly. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? God has noticed the Israelites enlisting the Canaanite peoples into forced labor rather than putting them to the sword. And he calls it for what it is. You have disobeyed my command not to make covenants and treaties with the people of the land. You have not broken down their altars and removed the presence of their idolatry. They have undermined God's word and failed to take seriously the risk to their faith and way of life being corrupted by the Canaanites. They have trivialized it. And so he reminds them of what he said would happen if they did this. And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. God warned. He warned them that if they took this path, if they settled for living with these sinful nations rather than removing them completely, he would hand them over to their enemies and their sinful influence. God would, in effect, give them what they were asking for. So how will Israel respond? Will they heed the warning? Will they take their failure and compromise seriously, repenting, renewing their efforts to do what God had commanded? Well, they certainly seem to feel sorry for themselves and they want God to be happy with them. So from verse 4, when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So the sorrow over their failure and the rebuke it has earned them. But is there real repentance? Well, with the problem of Israel's initial failure and compromise presented us uh, to us in chapter 1, and the question of their repentance left hanging, we turn to part 2 of the introduction to the book of Judges, from chapter 2, verse 6, through to chapter 3, verse 6. And, and it's almost like another different introduction. The narrator, he returns to the original context of Joshua sending the people away to take possession of the land. But now, instead of recounting the success or failure of the people to do that, the narrator makes broad sweeping statements about what happened in the generations after Joshua died. 
Uh, and we'll, as we'll see, this passage actually summarizes what comes in the rest of the book. And it gives us a framework for understanding what is happening. And it's not good news. We see uh, in this passage, what we see in this passage is really the sad outcome of the compromise that we saw in chapter 1. So firstly, in verses 6 to 10, the narrator sets the scene for what's to come. And the central point here is that whilst the people served the Lord during Joshua's lifetime, and even during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, of course, this generation knew about the Lord and what he had done, but they didn't know the Lord. They didn't respect him, worship him, or consider what he'd done for them. And how? How how could this happen in one generation? Well, reading chapters 1 and 2 together makes it clear, doesn't it? Whilst the first generation worshipped the Lord, uh, at the same time they had compromised their obedience to him. They'd done exactly what they had warned what what he had warned them not to do. They had not purged the land of the Canaanites. Instead, they lived lived amongst them. And so the children grew up alongside neighbours who worshipped Baal. Worship of the Lord became cultural and token. The worship of Baal seemed just as legitimate and worthwhile as worshipping the Lord. In fact, it seemed like it wasn't such a bad thing. After all, the Canaanites weren't doing too badly for themselves. And so from verse 11, we read... Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. So one generation after Joshua had bluntly warned the Israelites about the danger of the nations in the land influencing them, well, they were fulfilling his predictions. Rather than destroy the nations, break down their altars, they've made treaties with them, they've settled down with them, and as God had warned, they've followed and worshipped their gods. Rather than serving God, they are angering him with idolatry. And so, rather than experiencing his blessing, rather than God continuing to drive out their enemies and establish them, God hands them over to the enemies. Verse 14, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of the enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. God had warned them at Bochim. Actually, no, he had really reminded them at Bochim of what he'd already repeatedly warned them. If you make treaties with them and serve their gods, I won't drive them out. They'll be a thorn in your side. Their gods will be a trap for you. You'll be led astray. I'll turn my hand against you. I'll bring judgment rather than blessing on you. And so whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them, just as he had sworn. God is faithful to his warnings. But despite his anger and his determination to punish his people just as he promised he would, he is equally unwilling to abandon them. Just as he promised consequences for their sin and compromise, he also promised never to break his covenant with them. His love and faithfulness, his compassion for his people, uh, we read in verse 16, drives him again and again to raise up judges who saved them from the hands of these raiders. 
God intervenes graciously for the sake of his people and his own promises. And yet, the relief, the fix of their problems and the apostasy of the people is only ever temporary. The narrator explains from verse 17, yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's command. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So in these verses we see, don't we, the sad cycle of the book of Judges. Idolatry, judgment, groaning, compassion, salvation, and then back to idolatry. Worse and worse each time. It's not just a a cycle, it's a spiral. In the face of God's unrelenting grace, the people remain stubbornly committed to idolatry and sin. As they pointed out in the video, whilst God remains committed to them as Israel, his chosen people, they effectively become Canaanites, no different from the nations they were supposed to drive out. And so the fulfillment of God's plans to establish his kingdom through Israel, it's under threat, isn't it? They are not keeping the covenant. They're not living as his holy people. And God confirms his judgment on them for breaking his covenant. Verse 20, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and said, because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out um, before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. The God had promised to be with them and drive out the nations if they were faithful to him. But they've not been faithful. And so God will not drive the nations out. They will remain as a thorn in their side and a snare to them, just as God warned. The judgment that God warned them about at Bochim, the judgment they've begun to experience, it's confirmed. Their existence in the land is under threat. Ultimately, the plans and the promises of God to establish his kingdom for the sake of the world, it's under threat. It's a dark picture, isn't it? Well, the final section then of this two-part introduction, it summarizes everything we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 as a big failed test. And it leaves us pondering how we might respond to that test. A section, it really begins in chapter 2, verse 22, goes to 3, verse 6. It gives us an explanation for why God left various nations in the land after Joshua and a summary of what happened as a result. And the key point is that God was testing Israel to see if they would be faithful to him and his word. In verse 23, the narrator explains that it was God who had allowed various nations to remain and had not driven them all out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Why? Why did he do this? Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, we hear that this was to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. Now, on one level, as verse 2 explains, it was to teach these descendants warfare. But ultimately, we see in um, verse, chapter 2, verse 22, and chapter 3, verse 4, well, it was really to test their faithfulness to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands and walk in his ways. Would they continue the fight, drive out the nations? Would they be God's holy people? Or would they compromise, trivialize, fall into temptation, 
abandon God and his law? Well, we get the answer in verses 5 and 6. It's the answer we've already seen in chapters 1 and 2, which are really reflected in these verses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Chapter 1, instead of driving out the nations, they lived with them, verse 5. Chapter 2, instead of remaining holy and faithful to God, they intermarried with these nations. They served their gods. So ignoring God's warnings, compromising his word, failing to take temptation seriously has led to unfaithfulness, to corrupted faith, to idolatry. Israel fails the test. Any hope for a future, well, it rests in God's gracious intervention and his faithfulness in spite of his people's unfaithfulness. And you're supposed to ask the question, I think, how will I respond? The fact that the introduction finishes on this theme of testing brings it to our attention, doesn't it? God has saved me. He's made great promises to me. He's called me to put off the old ways and clothe myself in Christ, to journey through this life resisting sin, throwing off the obstacles that entangle and distract us. Will I trivialize the influence of people who are living according to very different convictions and values? Will I compromise in the fight against sin and just settle down and just live with it? doesn't really matter. Do I really want to see where that will take me? Or will I fix my eyes on Christ, continue that painstaking work of putting sin to death, putting off the old ways, putting on the new? Will we persevere in being the holy people of God for our sake and for the sake of God's kingdom plans and promises. Over the coming weeks, there's going to be a lot to learn from the book of Judges. In particular, I think we'll, we'll see that need to rest in God's gracious salvation in the face of our stubbornly sinful hearts. But this message, in the introduction, it's a key point for us to hear and to continue to dwell on. Beware the consequences of compromise. Keep focused on Jesus. Keep up the fight against sin. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for this sober warning of the book of Judges as a whole, but this introduction in particular. And we, we pray that you would help us to take it seriously. We don't want to compromise. We don't want to go down that path. We thank you for the gift of your spirit, that you help us to trust Jesus and to put sin to death. And we pray that you would help us do that more and more, trusting in him, we pray. Amen. Oh.